So thank you all. I was in Tijuana last week. I was invited there to preach. And I was very encouraged as the scripture says that God has a remnant, right? And a lot of times we could be discouraged saying that uh, the word of God may be hindered or that uh, Christians are really not um, out there in the world, but there are. God has his remnant everywhere. And Tijuana, Mexico is no exception. There are faithful Christians there. Uh, and I was very blessed to preach there last Sunday. And I had a wonderful fellowship with the saints there after the service. And I was very, very encouraged and very moved by the work that God is doing there. Uh, by the way, that sermon uh, did make it to YouTube, although it's audio only. But if you speak Spanish, um, feel free to check it out. Okay, so today we are continuing the exposition of the book of Romans in chapter 11. We are almost wrapping up chapter 11. Uh, so if you are able to stand, please turn your Bibles to Romans 11, 28 through 32. And let us see what the Lord has to say to us today. The infallible word of God with absolute authority reads as follows. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts in the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. That we are reminded this morning of the mercy that you extend to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us the importance of realizing this truth of your goodness that we receive, which is undeserved. Lord God, turn our hearts and our desires to obey you and to trust you. In this truth and in all your truths, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon title for today, in resuming the teaching that Paul is giving in this section, I named it, A Word to the Gentiles, Part 4. A subtitle that would fit this perhaps would be something like, The Conclusion of Paul's Admonition to the Gentiles. The main theme of this section for the past several sermons is that the Jewish nation rejected the gospel and the Gentiles gladly picked it up. As the saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. I was reminded of this by an anecdote that I had some time ago when I went to go buy new running shoes. I actually need to get back to running, so maybe I'll go and buy some new shoes soon. But I went to the running store, and as I took some time to, to choose which shoes I was going to get, um, I thought it a good idea to just get out of the store wearing the new shoes because they felt so good wearing them. And the, the young guy that was there as a sales guy, he says, oh, you know what, uh, you can go ahead and uh, get rid of your shoes, that, your old ones. We have a recycle bin. The bin is over there. So I said, okay, cool. I go over there. And as I opened this recycle bin to put my old shoes in there, I realized that the shoes in there, to me, they look new. 
And I'm thinking, I could just grab one of these and not buy anything. Right? And as silly as that is, they truly looked almost new, the shoes that were in the recycle bin. A lot could be said about that, right? First world problems. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Many times we may have a perception that something has little or no value, whereas to another person it would mean the world. Such is the case with the most important news of all the gospel, in which the Jewish nation disregarded it as not important, as something that could be discarded. And to the Gentiles, when they heard the good news, it was the best news they had ever received. That there was a God who wanted to reconcile with them and offer them salvation. So this section that we're going to look at today is one in which Paul has been expanding on a lament that he told us about a couple chapters back. Something is weighing very hard in his heart as he writes to the saints in Rome. And that lament is this. Paul is stating that he is grieved, he is burdened because, why? Let us look at Romans 10, verse 1. It says this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning the Jewish folks, is that they may be saved. He has a burden for his people. And he even stated this back in Romans 9, verses 2 and 3. He says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, that is, his Jewish brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. We see then that Paul is in this genuine state of sadness because he knows that his fellow Jewish people are outside of God's kingdom. Recap some of the main concepts from the previous passage, specifically that uh, Brother James preached last week. Came to ask this question, well, in Paul being grieved for the nation of Israel, he has told us why it is that they are left outside of the kingdom. And then he comes to this great question, will all Israel be saved eventually? Meaning the physical descendants of Abraham according to the bloodline. And unfortunately the answer is no, that's not the case. And this is why Paul is so grieved that they will not all be saved. Otherwise, Paul will have no such reason to be grieved. If he knows that there are are going to be saved, Paul's grief would be in vain. Paul would be in unnecessary anguish, and he would have gone over this lengthy exposition unnecessarily. Secondly, if it was the case that all Israel would eventually be saved because of their privileged bloodline, it would mean that God does show partiality according to someone's bloodline or race. My brothers and sisters, let us remember that throughout Scripture, and specifically in the book of Romans, Paul has told us that God is not partial. God does not show partiality. 
God is holy, righteous in all his judgments. And he will not favor anyone, whether individually or as a group, based, based on something they have done or not done. In this case, the nation of Israel, physical Israel, they are not and they will not be saved by their race. But they will be saved by grace. By grace. It was true then, it is true now. If there is any claim out there among all those liberal theologians that tell you that a certain group of people have special privileges because of their race, that is false doctrine. It is not so. All who come to God will come to Him on the basis of being sinners in need of a gracious and loving God who will give them what they don't deserve. So if God has saved you, it is not because you have done anything to gain God's favor, but rather God has saved you because he is merciful. So then Paul has told us that while most of Israel will not be, will not be part of God's kingdom, there sure is hope because God has a remnant. From those physical descendants of Abraham, there have been those that were faithful to God, the prophets, the patriarchs. And there still remains, Paul told us, a remnant within physical Israel. Those who form part of the real Israel, which is not, is not physical, but is spiritual. So then all those who are truly ruled by God, Israel, are those who belong by faith to Christ. Paul told us that in Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended, descended from Israel belong to Israel. There it is. Okay. When Paul is making claims about Israel being the true people of God, he is making a qualification. Not all physical Israel is of Israel. That is true Israel that belongs to God. That's one of the main key concepts, my brothers and sisters, that Paul has been telling us and reinforcing over and over. And then we look at Galatians 3.7. It also says this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay? The Bible talks about the true circumcision, right? In the Old Covenant, there was physical circumcision. But the scripture tells us that what God is truly looking for, what that symbolizes, is a circumcision of the heart. Because that's where our filth, our sin, proceeds from. What is truly in us, which is a fallen nature, is what comes out. That's what needs to be changed. Circumcision, then, of the heart, rather than of the flesh. Circumcision of the heart is a spiritual transformation. So then Paul has assured his audience that while not all of Israel will be saved, God does have a remnant, and they will be included in God's kingdom. Some of them have already been included, the patriarchs, the prophets, and even in Paul's time, Paul himself put himself as an example. When he said, has the promise of God failed? He says, no, because I myself am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in a few sermons back, we briefly explored 
other Jewish people that were also saved, meaning that they were part of God's remnant and they were also part of physical Israel. So with that lengthy introduction as part of our sermon today, what is Paul May's point here then? It's simply this. God shows mercy to both Jews and Gentiles. And in God saving the Gentiles, he used the disbelief, the disobedience of the Jewish people. It was God who drew the Gentiles because of the hardness of heart that the Jewish nation had. In God saving the Jews in the Old Covenant, then, it was God's work. He chose them. It was God's mercy. Now, in the New Covenant, as God has a remnant within physical Israel, and the Gentiles are brought in, God is using the faith of the Gentiles to make the Jewish nation jealous and provoke in them a godly, genuine desire to belong to the family of God. Here, too, God's mercy is at work. God is showing mercy to both Jews and to the Gentiles. Now, let me just make clear here that this notion of physical Israel will not be saved just because of their race, because of them being the, the physical nation of Israel. There are godly brothers, teachers, theologians that do believe that. And I don't think that that is a correct interpretation. I, I need to humbly say that. I believe they're brighter than I am, but I'm just not convinced from the scripture that that's what it means, that there will be a massive conversion of the Jewish people and the whole nation will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I don't believe the text is rendering that meaning. Now, with that out of the way, could there be a massive conversion? We pray to God that there is. Absolutely. Acknowledging that's not what the text means in, in, in our interpretation, but may there be such revival within the Jewish community. And for that matter, we should be praying for mass conversion everywhere, that the gospel may expand and people may come to know Christ as Savior. Okay? So with that, let us look at the three headers we will examine today. First, we're going to see the following. The Jews, we're told, are regarded as both enemies and at the same time, beloved. They're enemies of God, but yet they are beloved of God. How can that be? Secondly, we're going to see that God grants mercy to the disobedient. That's the main theme of the sermon. And thirdly, does God show mercy to all? What's going to be the final state of all when Paul closes with that statement in verse 32? We shall see. All right, so let's dig in. Jews regarded as both enemies and as beloved by God. Romans 11, 28 says, As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Okay, so again, let's bear in this text with a reminder that this is a recap of what Paul has been telling us in the last two or three chapters. This whole passage has been taken in the context of Paul's diatribe, as a style of teaching, in this entire text that comes before us. So who is Paul addressing? Right, this term is a word to the Gentiles. He's closing off his 
admonitions to the Gentiles. He's telling the Gentiles that the Jews, when it comes to the gospel, whether to be included or excluded from God's, from God's kingdom, because that's the only way for anyone to be included as part of God's people, if you embrace the gospel and turn to Christ in repentance, that the Jews are enemies of God in that respect, okay? Let us pause there. Among the ways in which the whole of humanity can be divided into two camps is this. You are either an enemy of God or you are at peace with God. Those are the only two options. There is no such thing for any one of you sitting right now in this room to say, I don't know, I'm actually neutral when it comes to... No. Right now you are either an enemy of God and you have the wrath of God upon you or you have peace with God. My brothers and sisters, my friends, for those of you who perhaps not know Christ, that should concern you. If you are at peace with God, to realize that you ought to be thankful and that you ought to have not a passive attitude of that peace that you've been granted, but an attitude of an enemy to a king that could have smashed you and killed you and wiped you out and he has forgiven you. What would your attitude be? Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. How can I serve you? How can I please you? What can I do to thank you? Versus the attitude of one who is at war with God. If you knew that you are at war with this king that at the snap of a finger could just wipe you out, wouldn't you want to know, how can I have peace? Because... War is here and I'm not going to win. That should shake you up. You are either at war or at peace with God. There is no in between. It is stated in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There it is. If you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy with God. Now, what is being a friend to the world? Obviously, us as Christians or as those who claim Christ as Savior, sure, we can be enticed and we can fall in the desires of our flesh, but we're going to get up and we're going to persevere. So that is for us, too, as a warning. But perpetual friendship of the world is those who are not Christian. Those whose desires and motives and pursuits are everything but Christ. So going back to the question, are you an enemy or are you at peace with God? This is a key indicator. What is the true and perpetual motive of your mind, your heart, your desires, your priorities? If it is not to be at peace and in fellowship with Christ... It is something else, and that is being friend in friendship with the world. So then, how can this enmity, this position of being an enemy with God, be made into peace? How can there be reconciliation for one who is an enemy of God to be then at peace with God? What must happen? Romans 5.10 says this, for if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, 
now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. We are reconciled to God by the perfect work of Christ. God Almighty, Jesus Christ, coming and dying for us sinners. This is the work of God. This is God showing grace and mercy to undeserving rebels. Even more so, God is the one who, make, who makes people realize that they are enemies, that they need a way to reconcile, that they need a Savior. This is not something that we come up on our own or realize on our own. It is granted for you to believe. So then, my brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, this is a reminder that it has been granted to you by God's grace and mercy to believe in Christ, as Philippians 1.29 says. If you are at peace with God, it is because He has shown you mercy. But if you do not know Christ, to this day, to this very second, you remain an enemy of God. That is a war that you have already lost. So cry out to God for forgiveness of your sins. Repent, follow Christ, and He will save you. Okay? Enemies of God. Let us head back now. Paul's point here that the Jews were enemies of God for the sake of the Gentiles. The concept there is, there was an adoption made by God that was ordained and decreed by God. That those people that were not his people would be made to be his people. As Hosea says, as Isaiah also says. Those people that had nothing to do with God, who were not a people of God, would be adopted into God's family. So while Israel rejected the means of salvation that God gave them, the Gentiles heard that message that they were sinners, that there is a holy God who created them and who will judge them, and that they have the opportunity to repent and to come to faith in Christ and be saved. And the Gentiles said, yes, sign me up. Absolutely. They believed it, they embraced it, and were grafted in because of the unbelief, because of the rebellion of the Israelites. Then Paul says the following, after saying that there were enemies. About those same people, now he says, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, there is a way in which those same people who are enemies of God and are lost are also viewed as beloved. There is something sacred about those people. There is a way in which those people were set apart. Now remember, a few sermons back, we saw how the scripture gives us the example and the application, really, that someone who is not a Christian can still be looked upon as set apart, as holy, as being sanctified. Now, if we talk about salvation, soteriology, it kind of sounds weird. Nevertheless, the scripture gives us that example. Remember that? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about a marriage in which one of the spouses becomes a Christian. And the scripture gives the command to say, don't leave them. If they want to stay, stay. 
And the idea is this. The scripture says that the unbelieving spouse is made holy for the sake of the believing spouse. Not only them, but also their offspring, their children, are also set apart and seen as holy because of the believing spouse. So in that sense, the scripture says they are set apart, they are holy. But when it comes to salvation, in, this, in the soteriological conversation, are they saved? No, they're not. Nevertheless, there's something special brought upon that household because of the believing spouse. So then, the entire Jewish nation, in that sense, for the sake of the patriarchs, are favored because God has shown favor to bring about salvation, to bring about Messiah by using, by setting apart the nation of Israel. In that sense, although they are enemies, and as a nation they hate God, the true God, yet they are beloved because God has chosen them to bring about the scriptures, the prophets, the patriarchs, and ultimately Messiah. Romans 9 verses 4 and 5 say this about the Israelites. It says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. There it is. In that sense, the nation of Israel is beloved. God chose them to bring God Almighty in the, in the flesh, Jesus. By the way, when somebody tells you the Bible never says that Jesus is God, it's right there. Verse 5. Christ in the flesh. What? Who is God overall? There it is. It's one of the more plain ways in which we see that. And there's many more. So in that verse, we better acknowledge that God tells us that there is something special about the nation of Israel. In the same sense that they've been set apart and they've been sanctified for that purpose, even though, by and large, as a whole, they are enemies of God. Okay? Now, Romans 11, 29, the next verse in our main text that it says this, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Taking this verse into context, what does that mean? The meaning here is that the way God has ordained how he dealt with Israel and how he decreed to reveal himself to the world by using Israel and hence always identify his word with Israel and the prophets with Israel and the 12 tribes with Israel. You get my point, right? We need to realize first that God cannot take that back. And that cannot be undone. That was gifted to the Jewish nation. And that's not going to be taken back. And secondly, God does not regret that he did that. This was not God's plan B. Like, you know what? The first thing didn't work out and I had to settle. No. God chose to reveal himself. He preordained in eternity past in his infinite wisdom. That was the plan. God did that. And it stands as it is. God gifted Israel with his oracles. God called Israel to be his people. 
and it stands. That's the way it is. Now, how can that apply to us as the true Israel of God? If God has gifted you faith, if Christ has been given to you with his righteousness, you've been justified, that too cannot be taken away. You will persevere. You do belong to God. Christ holds you and he says what? Nothing will snatch you out of his hand. That cannot be taken from you. It's irrevocable. All right. Header number two. God grants mercy to the disobedient. Okay? As we look at this next text, my brothers and sisters, remember this. Him who thinks he's not disobedient, him who thinks he got it all together, you don't need Christ. I mean, you do. Right? That's what Jesus said. He came for those who are in need of a physician. But if you think that you're cool, that, you know, this is just a way for me to, to have a little bit of religion in my life or to check that box, that's not for you. That means you're not saved. Because in order for you to receive God's forgiveness and mercy, you need to be knowledgeable and accept the fact that you're guilty. And everybody is. But those that don't realize that you're guilty or that you need a savior, Jesus says, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for you. You will die in your sin. You will perish in your self-righteousness, which is as dirty as dirty rags. Romans 11.30 For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Let's pause that thought there before we proceed to the next verse. God grants mercy. Let us remember once again. What is it to, reverse, to receive mercy? It is to receive compassion. The scripture tells us that Jesus saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. And it says this, that he had compassion for them. Compassion. To be spared from getting what you deserve. That's mercy. Mercy and grace go hand in hand. When God shows you mercy, he withholds what you really deserve, which is judgment. And yet, gives you grace what you don't deserve. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones Jones says this as, uh, as follows, talking about this passage and specifically what, what mercy is. It says, what is mercy? It is the pity of God. Were it not for the mercy of God, nobody would ever be saved. Salvation is always the result of God's mercy. It is never due to anything in men at all. Close quote. Notice it says that you at one point were disobedient. Right? Going back to the main text. It also means that because you were disobedient, it implies that you were in unbelief. Someone who is disobedient to God is in unbelief. Meaning, those Gentiles were no better than Israel. Israel rejected God, disobedience, disbelief. The Gentiles that are being grafted in, they also hated God. They could care less. Yet, because God is merciful, He grafted them in. Because of the disobedience and the unbelief of the Jewish nation, the Gentiles received mercy. 
Let us go back to Romans 11, 11, where it says this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, of the Jewish folks, salvation has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous. Now, for some reason that we will not know in this side of heaven, God used the disbelief of the Jews to graft us in, the Gentiles. And in doing so, to make the people of Israel jealous and provoke them to a genuine desire to know God. So then we see that God used Israel's disobedience to graft us in, into his kingdom. But the very fact that the Gentiles, that we are now part of God's people, is also what God uses in order to call back Israel to repentance. Which gets us to the next verse now, Romans 11, 31. So they too, the Jewish folks, now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now reserve, receive mercy. So there is a godly jealousy that is provoked by the Gentiles being shown mercy. And the Jewish people that are called will come to faith. Not by their works, but by their faith alone. Now, my brothers and sisters, do not forget the reason why the Jews were rejected. Paul tells us that the reason God rejected his people is because they were trying to establish a righteousness of their own. They did not acknowledge God or his righteousness and did not submit to his righteousness. They wanted to do it on their own merit. It is no different today. All who reject Christ do so on the basis that they think they are righteous on their own. May we not fall in that trap, my brothers and sisters. If indeed we are righteous, we are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. The Bible talks about like a robe. We've been given the white spotless robe of Christ in order to go into the feast of the King. God then grants mercy to the disobedient, to those that know that they need forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 4 says this. The context there is after speaking about all kinds of wickedness and sins, it says this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, he has granted us the righteousness of Christ. Okay, uh, third header now. Given that God has grafted the Gentiles, that he gives mercy to the disobedient, does God show that mercy to all? The last verse in our exposition today says this. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So let us ask that then. Does God show mercy and grace to all of humanity? In a general sense, yes. God has given life and sustenance to all who have ever lived and to all that are alive today. Like the scripture says that God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
God is good in that way. He is merciful in that way. So in that sense, yes, God has shown mercy to all. But this is not what this verse means. What we're looking at here is whether God has extended particular grace, particular mercy to everyone. This has to do with the ultimate verdict that every sinner will receive when we are before the judgment of God Almighty. That's what this has to do. There will either be a verdict of guilty with eternal condemnation or a verdict of come, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Now this verse says that God has consigned all to disobedience. And this is where we see that when it says that we, he's consigned all to disobedience, that all does not mean the same as grant mercy to all. That's two different alls. We're going to see why. It is true that all of humanity has been restricted to have a fallen nature. Our nature is fallen. That's a default condition out of the box when we are born. By nature, we are sinners. We are naturally disobedient to God. I do not need to show my kids how to disobey. They do that naturally. No one is born a Christian. Everyone is born in disobedience. And we are trapped in that human nature. That word consigned, that God has consigned all to disobedience, means that we have been trapped in that box of sin to realize that we can't get out. Like, I'm disobedient to God by nature and by choice every single day. Galatians 3.22 uses that very same language and concept. It says this, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what is then that one positive effect of being trapped in disobedience in that fallen, wicked nature that we cannot escape. The benefit is that God can grant mercy to all who come in repentance by faith in Christ alone. That's it. Given to those who believe. So then, mercy to all humanity? No. That's not what the last all means there, that he will grant mercy to all. Obviously, we saw in one sense, yes, everybody has life and sustenance given by God. Yeah, but that, that's not what it means. The all who will be granted mercy is those who are granted belief, repentance in Christ. Otherwise, it would mean that Paul is advocating for universalism, meaning that no matter, no matter what happens or what you do, faith in Christ or not, you will be okay. Which again, would contradict the whole exposition Paul has given us that he's grieved because his Jewish kinsmen are not part of God's kingdom. If we were to interpret this to mean that God is going to give everybody a free pass, then Paul would have not gone through all that. He's grieved that they are not part of the kingdom. and Therefore, it cannot mean that God is going to save everyone. That's not what it means. God will save all who turn in repentance and faith in Christ only. 
So then what are some final reflections from the sermon today? First, let us recognize who is it that needs mercy? Well, everyone is guilty before God. Everyone. There is not one that does good. No, not one. Not even you. Put your name in there. You do not do good before God. Therefore, you need mercy. Who needs mercy? In your mind and in your heart, admit that you, you do. You need mercy. You are not okay with God in your natural state. You may think you're a good person or you do enough good deeds. And therefore, you'll have a, a proper place with God. That's incorrect. That would be you asking God for justice. Give me what I deserve because I've been doing relatively okay. Wrong. If you ask God for justice, he will give you help. That's God's justice, condemnation. Therefore, don't come to God asking him to give you what you deserve. Ask him to give you what you don't deserve. Fall on his mercy each and every day, over and over and over. You need mercy. Now, given that all of us need mercy, who are the ones who actually receive mercy? That's question number two. Who receives mercy? As we saw, those that receive mercy is those who trust in Christ. Only, only those who trust in Christ. By faith alone, through grace alone. Someone could then come and ask, well, but you know, all these things about whether somebody is elect or not, and whether God has chosen them. My brothers and sisters, that is none of our business. Turn in repentance to Christ. Fall upon His mercy. And the Bible says you will be saved. Not maybe, you will be saved. Acknowledge that you, you will receive God's mercy if you turn to Him in repentance. Okay, so who needs mercy? Everyone. But who receives it? Those that turn to Christ in repentance only. And lastly, who gives mercy? God does. We are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and on, that God is the Father of all mercies and comfort. God is the one who gives mercy. In the ultimate sense of forgiving sins, God is the only one who can issue mercy. And get this, He's not obligated to do so. He does so because He is good and righteous. So therefore, may God grant us, by the power of, our Holy, of His Holy Spirit, the understanding that we, you, each one of you sitting here today, needs mercy. For those younger people here, for all you kids, pay attention, remember this. There's been a time when each of you know that you haven't listened to mommy or daddy and that you may be in trouble, right? There's been a time when you know you didn't listen and you should have listened. And then your daddy or your mom comes to you and asks you, did you do what you should do or did you not listen to what I said? And instead of punishing you, mom or dad tells you, it's okay, I forgive you. Right there. Your mom or your dad has shown you mercy. 
Doesn't that feel good? Isn't that good news to you? Yes. Now get this. Infinitely more important is that you come to Jesus and you ask him for forgiveness of your disobedience. And Jesus will forgive you. That is great news that also applies to all of you that are younger. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this scripture that reminds us that you grant mercy to all who trust in Christ. Therefore, Lord, we pray that you may grant all of us repentance to turn to you. Whether it is for our daily sanctification that we need in order to return to you, or whether it is for salvation. That our hearts may not be not become callous and hard to the gospel, but that your Holy Spirit may break those callous hearts and allow us to embrace the truth of your gospel and to walk in repentance. Thank you, Lord, for this is a work that you do. You promise us that the work you began, you will be faithful to complete. Oh, Lord, how comforting that is. For even when we feel that we fail, and we do fail, and that we sin because we do sin, may we remember that we have a great advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who forgives us of our sins when we confess unto him. Thank you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.